Welcome to Waco Watch the Podcast. I am Duana McCray and I'm here with Mike Tomasulu and Danielle Williams to talk about the second trial in the VLSI versus Intel case. Now, as you all know, in this trial, VLSI is seeking over $3 billion in damages from Intel for Intel's alleged infringement of two patents. Danielle, what happened during day five of the trial? On day five, Intel rested its case in chief. The parties uh, finished uh, with Professor Lieb, who is Intel's infringement expert from MIT. And then Intel uh, presented its damages expert, Hans Houston, and uh, Mr. Houston was their final witness. Uh, after that, uh, VLSI put on its rebuttal case, uh, and the witnesses included Dr. Mark Chandler, who was a rebuttal damages witness focusing on licensing, and then also had professors Rogioli and Ryman, who testified uh, that the patents were both valid and infringed. So the same experts that they had in uh, their case in chief. And then uh, Intel, excuse me, and then VLSI rested. Uh, the jury was dismissed for the day and the parties worked through the jury charge with the court after that. Mike, what did we see from the bench during day five? So you know, once again, as we've seen before in Judge Albright's trials, the plaintiff gets to speak last. And that's true even on matters where the plaintiff itself has the burden of proof. So VLSI, as you would expect, put on a, a responsive case to Intel's validity case. Intel says the patents aren't valid. That's Intel's burden of proof. And as you would expect, VLSI rebutted that charge. But VLSA also put on an additional damages witness that it had not put on in its case chief, and it also put back on the stand its two infringement experts who testified that the patents were both infringed and valid. And so that's not something that's done in every court, and people need to be aware of that. If you're in Judge Albright's court for a patent case, the plaintiff is going to get to speak last even on matters that it has the burden of proof. And that's not something that necessarily occurs in other courts throughout the country. So this is a good point to look out for, Mike. Um, let's jump into the testimony and the arguments that each side presented during day five. What points were VLSI trying to make during the cross of Professor Lieb? So, Dewana, you'll remember that Dr. Lieb was testifying that the patent uh, was not infringed and was invalid. And so, as, as you'd expect, VLSI's lawyers cross-examined him about the substance of his opinions, but a, a principal goal that they tried to accomplish was to uh, make it seem like Dr. Lieb was contradicting Intel's own documents and Intel's own engineers, and further, that those Intel documents and Intel engineers actually agreed with VLSI's infringement experts. Let me give you an example. Um, VLSI sometimes refers to the accused technology as either Intel's embodiment, the accused embodiment, um, the accused product is, for instance, the fiber voltage regulator. Or they might also accuse, they also, VLSI also sometimes said that the accused technology was the Sigmatel technology, which is what the patent covers 
because the patent originated at Sigmatel. So Lieb apparently testified, and not surprisingly, that the Sigmatel technology is not important to Intel. And then VLSI stated that that testimony contradicted the Intel engineers and documents that said that the fiber technology was important to Intel. Now, obviously, Intel's fiber technology was important to Intel. I think that Dr. Lee was probably trying to testify that, of course, the fiber technology is important, but Sigmatel's technology was not important. But that's the kind of things that VLSI was trying to accomplish was to portray Dr. Lee as an unreliable witness who was testifying one thing one day and contradicting the Intel engineers as well as Intel's own documents. So I look forward to seeing whether or not um, that resonated with the jury and to see, you know, um, their take on whether or not Professor Lee was reliable. Um, Danielle, let's move to the direct and cross-examination of Intel's damages expert, Hans Houston. What were the points raised during Mr. Houston's direct and cross-examination? As we learned in the first trial, uh, Mr. Houston spent 30 plus years at IBM uh, negotiating patent licenses. And as we know, IBM holds one of the largest patent portfolios in the world. Intel spent a significant amount of time with Mr. Houston, making sure that his credentials uh, were clear, that he has negotiated 550 patent licenses that valued semiconductor and microprocessor technology, just like the technology that's in this case. From there, Intel went forward uh, with what they described as the real world uh, facts and information that someone in Mr. Houston's position, who is the only person that anybody brought uh, to the trial who has ever done this before, as far as ascribing a number, uh, would would look at and went through uh, both the categories and the basis uh, for for that information and and what uh, and why it was important to the analysis. A lot of the direct exam was under seal. In fact, uh, Mr. Houston's opinion as to the amount of damages. Uh, was under seal, so we did not actually hear uh, the number, but we understand uh, from further uh, communications that the number is a couple of million dollars, but we don't know the exact amount. That was interesting, Danielle. Um, what were the points that VLSI made during the cross of Mr. Houston? On cross-examination, the VLSI attacked uh, Mr. Houston's approach and his reliance on uh, on these settlement license agreements and attacked them both individually and as a as a general category. They also generally took issue with exactly what he was presenting and relying on and then went through an effort to identify other licenses that he could have relied on but chose not to. So, for example, VLSI pointed to a license uh, to Uniphase Corporation uh, that IBM uh, had agreed to from 1997 that had a per patent royalty of up to 5%. And this is the same license that we heard about in the first uh, VLSI Intel trial. 
Uh, and then VLSI uh, went on to criticize his approach as being untethered to the actual value Intel would eventually take from the license. So, for example, the license it, the licenses and the numbers that Mr. Houston were were offering to the jury as the reasonable royalty in this case didn't actually look at how much money uh, and how much uh, Intel was able to benefit from the use in this case. After Mr. Houston's testimony, um, Intel rested its case in chief and then VLSI put on its rebuttal case. I'm um, starting with Dr. Mark Chandler as the rebuttal damages witness. Um, Mike, could you give us an overview of the points that were made during Dr. Chandler's direct examination? Yeah, so Duana, the thing that's interesting here, this is a witness who did not testify in the case in chief, so he was solely a rebuttal witness to Mr. Houston. He echoed the themes that Danielle just explained that were brought up in VLSI's cross-examination of Intel's damages expert, Mr. Houston. It again brought up the uh, the notion that these were cherry, that Mr. Houston was relying on cherry-picked licenses and ignored the real-world benefits that Intel supposedly enjoyed from its alleged infringement of the two patents. And so the, he really did not, he didn't offer his own opinion as to anything. He didn't offer a damages number. He did not uh, do anything really other than echo the themes uh, that VLSI was was introducing introducing through its cross examination of Mr. Houston and themes that we will expect to see in in VLSI's closing arguments. I think one thing to note about this that's different than the last case. In the last case, VLSI used this expert to successfully introduce other licenses that um, Dr. Chandler considered quote informative but not comparable. So those were large dollar licenses, for instance, a $1.5 billion license from NVIDIA to Intel. In this case, he was not allowed to, to describe or disclose those licenses other than to say that he was aware of licenses that he thought were informative that were, you know, that had larger dollar amounts. So that's a significant, a potentially significant difference between this case and the last case. Danielle, what did we see on um, during the cross-examination of Dr. Chandler? Uh, Gillum cross-examined Dr. Chandler and focused on the absence of any additional information. Uh, and just like Mike was, was just relaying, was highlighting for the jury that Dr. Chandler wasn't there to give any opinion on what the damages should be but then acknowledged that all these other experts who had come before had given opinions. And so there were uh, uh, cross-examination blocks that were focused on everything that Dr. Chandler was not providing that other folks in the case had already provided. Danielle and Mike, VLSI also presented um, two additional witnesses during its rebuttal case, um, Professors Brogioli and Professor Reinman. Um, Mike, what did they testify about? So they, they not surprisingly, they they rebutted Intel's invalidity case, and so you know they did that in the manner that you might expect. 
but they also used the opportunity to speak last on infringement. So in, in many ways, it was a summation of their views that they had you know, provided in, in their direct testimony. And they also used the opportunity to criticize the um, non-infringement experts that Intel had put on the stand. So it really was basically getting the last word in on infringement, and that was a, a large part of what they were testifying about. Of course, they did also, as I mentioned, testify that the asserted patents are are valid, and that Intel's invalidity case, uh, you know, doesn't doesn't um, it doesn't doesn't make the bar. What were the implications from the party's positions on day five? Well. I have a couple of observations. One, the case is almost to the jury. The jury is going to receive its instructions and closing arguments on Tuesday morning. And you know, number two, I would say that the party's strategies are substantially similar to that in which we saw in the first case. Uh, there's been some changes in personnel, uh, largely on on the part of Intel's team. But the, you know, the damages witnesses for both parties are the same. The key, you know, the core lawyers are the same, and there have been some. I'd say small strategy tweaks uh, by Intel, but you know, largely we saw a lot of what we're seeing in this case, in the last case, and I guess everybody will be wondering whether you know there's going to be is a different jury. Well, there'll be a different outcome. What'd you see, Danielle? Similar to what you just described, Mike. Uh, what we saw in the first case is, uh, in closing argument uh, from VLSI, is that is a focus on the credibility of the witnesses and looking at the testimony and highlighting where there may have been either actual or the appearance of uh, contradictory testimony. And I thought uh, Monday, or excuse me, day five, during the cross-examination of uh, Intel's witnesses that that, uh, that that was clear that that's going to be part of their approach for closing argument as well, that they're going to try and use perceived or actual uh, contradictions as part of the credibility component of the closing argument. I agree with that, Danielle. Thank you, Danielle, and thank you, Mike. I look forward to hearing the closing arguments and the verdict in this case. And to the listeners, please tune in next time where we will discuss the closing arguments and verdicts. Um, thanks, all.